Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Welcome, Intimates. Kat's back for another session. This time we talk about their experience of people-pleasing and of worthlessness. Ugh, do I ever relate with that one. Kat describes this idea of being a wantless angel that spends their time satisfying other people's needs and wants. It may sound awful, but sometimes I personally think the body can be a traumatic place to be and focusing on someone else can sometimes be a relief. It can be a great way to get needs for validation met. And of course, this place of avoidance that I sometimes go to or that Kat might go to, I think many of us visit that regularly or for healthier folks, probably vacation it, you know, vacation there occasionally. In any case, I bring up this idea of slowing down the process of reliving trauma, or as some bloggers call it, titrating. Basically, what I want to get at is it's about allowing a person to control how much of their trauma they, they bring into their body, how much of it's alive within them at once, and in being able to control it, being able to manage a healthier processing of trauma. So essentially, we talk about mental health and therapy. Finally, we make it to giving or getting permission to ask for what you want, which is an important part of getting what you want. And remember, if you like the podcast, tell your friends or write us a review on the iTunes store or wherever else you get your podcasts. Enjoy the session. Welcome, Intimates, to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Kat Stark, the author of Yelling in Pasties, The Wet Coast Confessions of an Anxious Slut, um, the podcaster and blogger behind OnTheWetCoast.com, and the Twitter person at West, Wet Coast Cat. I'm so easily lulled into that trap. Oh, yeah, everybody is. Like, I often get name tags at events that say, like, West Coast, and I'm like, no, it's... It's a pun on Vancouver and on my prolific sexual escapades, moistening of ah, I see. the things around me. Um, so but there is like the coast of where your clothing is still drying. <laughs> yes. I understand. Yeah. I often feel a sense of accomplishment if I can force someone to just ruin their panties. <laughs> it's, it's a great sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I... I definitely travel with like multiple like water soak up blanket kind of things mm-hmm. and yeah they're my best friends. Yeah, gussets are only so thick. Oh yeah, no, that 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 ain't nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So today we're going to be talking about overcoming the good girl within. Mhm. Um I did two question sets for the first two and this one is all you all the writing. So Let's talk about what it means to be a good girl. Do you want to read the quote from Marsha Baczynski? Sure. Among those socialized as girls, however, 
there is often a particularly extra strong need to be nice, to put others' needs before your own, and to follow the unwritten expectation that you must be compliant and self-sacrificing to be of value. So that's Marsha Baczynski. Mm -hmm. It describes me so much. I, Even though I don't necessarily identify as girl as much these days, it yeah, that has very much been my life is is attempting to please others. And mm-hmm. and that idea of like proving my worth just comes up over and over and over because I just, yeah, it's just such a constant for me. And always when, you know, when relationships end, you know, for so many different reasons, I often take all that on as like I didn't prove worthy Right. of this relationship and so that is why it ended brene and... brown has the whole bit on the hustle for worthiness oh i haven't read that one i've you read a couple you of, should read brene of brown. her stuff but you know there's only so much freaking time yes that's true <laughs> um but yeah i've read some of her stuff and it's it's been pretty enlightening but the um... gifts of imperfection oh maybe i have read that because i did read that book um she and... talks about the hustle the hustle for worthiness yeah <clears throat> as this struggle where you you get into that place where you're on the ropes and it's like you're about to enter that shame funnel and spiral all the way down yeah and you're just working for that little bit of self-worth that you're trying to get from this external validation yeah yeah i i, I think i scribbled all over that book as well but my ability mm-hmm. to retain information is often a little sketchy that's fair. um but yeah that spoke to me a lot and it's triggering information and information that accesses a lot of like traumatic parts of your memory is probably yeah. not going to be retained super well anyway. Yeah. And this idea of like, this is how I work and attempting to figure out how to not work this way when it feels so intrinsic and mm. you know, there's, there's so much uh, therapy that's needed to. Uh, and only so much that. time for said therapy. Yeah. And only so much money. Cause you know, unfortunately mental health care is not affordable. Yeah. Although Dragonstone's pretty amazing. It's so great. It's so great. But I still just can't. Yeah, that's fair. I understand. So what would you say your early experiences were with being a good girl? Like, where do you think you first started picking it up? I, I've definitely always sort of um, registered as a bit of a perfectionist. Um, and... I I can't really think of any like particularly traumatic event or anything like that but my brother who's a couple of years older than me much more volatile personality and had a much more volatile relationship with our parents and was definitely like a bad boy and just did what he wanted and he didn't really like people getting hurt in the process wasn't really of a thing to him and I spent a lot of my life attempting to make up for that. So if I could be like perfect enough, if I could get straight A's, if I could get like all of these things and do every single thing correctly, that would help to counterbalance what he wasn't doing. Like, do you mean to take care of your parents? Yeah. And to sort of, I guess, act as sort of this, this kind of buffer and this kind of mediator, like to try to get things smooth because, you know, when there was all this volatility and upset and yelling and stress, that wasn't meeting your needs for security. Yeah. Um, so I was just always trying to like, let's get things smooth. So I I just, I just learned that without knowing I was learning that too. That is like the archetypal uh, environment for cultivating that. Yeah. And even though I'm the younger sibling, I am kind of a classic older sibling when you look at all the qualities of my behaviors. So 
Yeah, I mean, so much of getting your needs met involved people pleasing. Yeah, yeah. I can see how that would have been conditioned so, yeah, into you. Yeah, so that felt that felt safe, and I had a few friendships that you know it's kind of questioning now to call them friendships, but I was definitely bullied as a kid, and. Um, had friends like stop talking to me and in fact got the entire class to stop talking to me oh, at Jesus, one point. Oh, that's awful. Um, and I think I'd, I'd been sick for a couple days and then I came back to school and like nobody is talking to me and I don't know what's going on and no one will tell me what's going on and all this stuff. And I think it took a couple days to then find out that it was because I walked on my tiptoes. Wow. And this was about grade four, I think. Um, and trying to think of what bullies were doing to me in grade four, because the way that like boys and girls are bullied tends yes, to be quite different. Very different. But that sounds horrific. Like convincing your whole class not to talk to you is really mean. Yeah, it's it's brutal. And I had like some of the other like girls that I played with on the block were a couple of years older than me. So I tended to sort of have to do what they wanted because they were older and cooler. And I wanted, to, you know, if I wanted to spend time with them, right. then there was this exchange. So I just, I learned sort of over and over that my worth in anyone's eyes was by what I did for them. And right. if I didn't do what they wanted and keep them happy, then I was worthless and they would discard me. Right. Like you had to, you had to, Yes. <laughs> exactly what you said. Exactly what you said. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just trying to frame it again. It's so funny how humans try to relate to stories with yeah. like, their own stories. And yeah. I'm like, this is not about me. <laughs> um, yes. So exactly what you were saying. Um, where do you think your ideas for self-sacrifice specifically came from? Well, definitely, you know, those those pieces of, of the bullying that I got and, and the idea that I, yeah, my value was, was in giving things to others and, and basically that my needs just didn't matter. Right. And so I think like by not even registering that my needs mattered, it makes self-sacrifice easy because mm -hmm. yeah, what, what I want is irrelevant. So everything is what I give to others. Mm -hmm. um, and so when complicated things would come up, I would just tend to quash those and just be like, no, you know, and these are my feelings and these are my wants, but what mm -hmm. everybody else wants is more important and in order to be loved and be, you know, have friends and stuff like that, this is just how I need to behave. So how has people pleasing negatively affected your life? Yeah, it's definitely like wandering through your life with not a whole lot of self-worth is rather challenging. Right. Um, and it's meant that I've gotten into a lot of situations, a lot of relationships that have not served my needs. Right. And I haven't been happy and I haven't felt good about myself. And I'm, it doesn't feel like, as we were talking about earlier, it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel stable because I'm always just on and in this, this feeling of, of instability and fear. Um, and as an anxious person, um, these things really, you know, funnel into one another and drive each other. So, you know, I have this, the anxiety is the baseline and then this fear kicking in, which ramps up the anxiety and then just operating in this constant state of, of being worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing and, or do the wrong thing. And then people are going to write me off. And so for the first, I think 
10 years or so of flicks in my relationship, like I thought like, okay, today is the day I'm going to say the wrong thing and he's going to leave me. Wow. Um, and, and that was like a regular staple. Yeah. Like that was just like sort of every day, like I would just be like, and so I've really had a hard time like finding my voice, like being a person who expresses themselves and, and feels comfortable having needs. And so I have spent my life not getting my needs met and not even realizing that, that I could even like, um, so like in, in sexuality and an emotional connection, you know, I've just tended to exist without feeling fulfilled in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, it's, it's coming. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not entirely there yet. And the more secure my relationship feels, the better I am at expressing needs. So mm -hmm. um, as Flick and I have been together so long, um, I, be be I became better at, you know, saying, hey, I need this. But, you know, we had these experiences early on in our marriage where I had asked for, um, gosh, I don't want it's this is so stupid, I don't want to get upset. Um, I'd asked for cinnamon hearts for Valentine's Day, those stupid, like, $1 candies. Yeah. And that was all I asked for. And he didn't get them because he went to one store and they didn't have them. And so he came home without them. And, you know, I read that as, like, I'm not even worth a right. dollar of candy. I'm not worth two stores or three stores or five stores, like, which is how I would have behaved if someone... Right. I loved asked me for something. Um, but to him, it wasn't important because it was just this dumb candy. Um, right. It didn't have all the significance and the weight that I had put into it because I also right. didn't express that clearly. That it was that important. That it was that important to me. And when it, the need wasn't fulfilled and he didn't come through with that, I didn't even say anything, really. It was Oof. just like, I was just like, oh, okay. I respect that you have no valuation of me whatsoever. And yeah, I just took that because the, it was yeah. all I felt I deserved. And then the person that I was most important to me in the world was just reinforcing that. Right. But like so much of that is a narrative that you painted on top of that. Yes. Yeah. Because to him, he was like, oh, I went there. They didn't have it. No big. Like maybe we'll get some tomorrow. Maybe we'll, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it was us coming at the story with such different things. But I can also see like what a harrowing experience that would have been. Yeah. Like why you would have been so upset. That's very reasonable given like where you were coming <laughs> yeah. from. Cause I thought like, I'm not, you know what? I'm not one of these demanding people. I don't ask for diamonds. I don't ask for, right. you know, you, you don't have to buy me flowers and chocolates. Like it doesn't have to be this big production. Right. Like all I'm asking for is this tiny little thing. Cause it's probably sentimental um, and like, you, you know, know, and they're tasty. I like them. Um, oh, I it see. just like, it was just like this pleasure thing. Um, okay. and yeah. And it just didn't, yeah, it just didn't get fulfilled. And the next year, the same thing happened. Oh. <laughs> so you just never got these cinnamon hearts. Um, and then the so year the it's... year after that, I guess, instead of speaking directly to him and expressing how much pain I felt about this, I guess I kind of bitched about this. And like five of my friends bought me cinnamon hearts. 
um, which was lovely. Um, but then I think it got him feeling resentful about that. And so, you know, he, he didn't. And then I just stopped ever asking for the dumb, what you wanted for the dumb pieces of candy that are full of red dye and garbage that I'm better off not eating. Um, but yeah, it just, but I mean, they aren't dumb though. They represent something significant. I think maybe flick, flick didn't see that. No. And it just like, it just taught me the lesson that I had learned as a child, like just over and over. Right. Um, that to some extent, all humans look to confirm what they already believe to be true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, such a good example of how people pleasing negatively affects you for your whole life. Cause yeah. you're literally confirming this idea of worthlessness everywhere you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and you don't ever read the the positives, like all the people, like, you know, my friends showing up with these things to be like, Hey, you know, we see you. Um, and stuff like that was just like, Oh yeah, that was just them. Like, um, it, it didn't, you know, you just, you blindly negate that sort of thing. Um, but there's, there's another side to it that you're not actually showing up authentically. Right. Um, and yeah, there's another quote that I, that I kept on my phone cause it just blew my mind, um, when I read it. Um, and I unfortunately don't know where it came from. I didn't write the citation down, um, and have never been able to track it down. Um, But it goes, but pretending that you are some sort of wantless angel will destroy you because you aren't being honest. Mm. And it just, yeah, it just blew my mind because it was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm not being honest when I'm not expressing my needs and, and my wants, like, wow, God forbid, like wants get met, like, let alone needs. Um, Right, right. It. It's just like, yeah, you're not showing up in a, as an authentic person. You're like behind this kind of persona and the people in your life aren't really getting to see you. Yeah. And I know that's coming from a fear of them. If they see the real me, they will dispose me as the garbage I am. Um, but it, yeah, you're you're not being there for, for them in a real way um, by yeah. hiding behind the sort of disguise of, of not having these needs or wants. It's interesting, too, because, like, the more you're smiling, the more I'm reading it as discomfort. Oh, yeah. I'm, with... a, I'm a discomfort laugher and smiler. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it, a lot of it's resonating with me because I also tend to smile when I'm really uncomfortable um, and just have, like, resting bitch face the rest of the time. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> There's no other way to do it, um, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that was normal to me. Right. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because I got into tons of shit at school for it because, like... I would be, someone else would be getting into trouble for bullying me and I'd be smiling and they'd be like, look, like he's like, he's smirking about this. Like he like, he's manipulative and he's like created this situation and you're just like, oh, I'm just even more smiling now because I'm even more anxious and stressful. And it seems like it might even generate that nervous laughter and it just, yeah, reinforces that. Actually, one of my teachers was amazing in that. One of my teachers actually pointed out some people smile when they're stressed and it shut the bully up and it was like a revelatory moment for me because I didn't realize that that was what I was doing. But as soon as she said it, I was like, why did no one tell me? Yeah. And I, and, and and it's interesting that, that it comes to you because I think that partly for me as someone socialized female, there's a lot of that, like, oh yeah, I've got to, smile. I've got to be polite. And yep. I, you know, no matter what is happening, I just have to present with this friendly front. Right. Um, because there are big risks to not doing so. Um, 
but I'm sure like being bullied as a kid, you know, in a, in a different way, like you're still going to have a lot of that protective, like I need to behave kind of this way to like appease and, mm. you know, de, de fuse, diffuse the situation. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I felt a lot of shame in my life for being too abrasive. Um, there was there was a lot in school where I just was not a liked person. Like, had no friends all through elementary school. Had The only friends I really felt like I had in high school were the other people who had no friends. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I was part of the library at lunch Magic the Gathering group. Okay. <laughs> only I didn't have money for Magic the Gathering cards. Yeah. But at one point, um, one of my friends took pity on me and let me have a deck, essentially, of his stuff. And I just, like, worked with it. And then swapped out cards with stuff that he had and eventually built a deck I liked. Yeah. And just played with them. And that's literally, like, what we did was we would play Magic the Gathering at lunch. Mm-hmm. And we were all, like, somewhat abrasive, somewhat awkward, dorky teenagers that just kind of, like, found community in friendlessness almost. Yeah. That's how it felt to me. Although I think there were friends within that group. I'm not sure that I was one of them. Uh-huh. To maybe more than, like, one or two people. Tops. Yeah. And that was my social circle for essentially K to 12. Yeah. And in university, I was really outspoken and disagreeable because, you know, with how much gaslighting I had to deal with from my mom growing up, mm. like I I very much developed this disagreeable, ardent, like, go fuck yourself, like you're wrong um, kind of approach to conflict when I felt I had a pretty good reason to believe I was right. Yeah. If people could use an evidence-based framework and say like, oh, well, here are the reasons you're wrong, I would grudgingly accept it every time. Uh-huh. But if they didn't have a lot of stuff to point to, I'd be like, no, that's garbage. Yeah. Like, prove me wrong. Um, just reminds me of <laughs> Seymour Skinner. God damn it, Edna, we both know these kids don't have any future. <laughs> a whole cafeteria sound. Prove me wrong, kids. Prove me wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, um, so in university, I mostly had um, people who all knew me. They knew of me because they'd seen me in class, like, debate with someone yeah. and just, like, essentially be a dick, but be a dick who is right all the time. Yeah. But I was convincing enough and smart enough in, in the subject material that I would typically just know more than the person I was debating with. Yeah. So, like, typically I would win all my points and it would sound really obvious to people listening, um, but, like totally friendless yeah like didn't you don't make friends that way no and being right like you almost make fewer friends right like if you're if you're a loud mouth mm-hmm. you know just mm-hmm. just for whatever but if you're like if you're the right person all along like then yeah people back off even more yeah and i was coping with severe depression in university not just because yeah. i had no social network but because one of my partners tried to kill herself like really early on mm-hmm. like first year university wow um and i stayed with her and lived with her for a while after that so it was it was a lot of like managing without any social skills managing mm-hmm. without any relationship skills trying to figure myself out trying to build some semblance of emotional intelligence because i got like zero percent of that from my gender socialization and like trying to learn all those skills on the fly while at university doing a full-time science course load pre-medical was ridiculous. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds incredibly yeah. difficult. Yeah, and I mean, looking back, I'm like, I don't know how I got through that. Like, I was suicidal a number of times, but, like, no idea how I got through that with no friends. So, like, 
I empathize hard when you talk about like having a strong, deep-seated sense of worthlessness that you just carry with you through your life and it like infects everything you touch. It's like mm -hmm. so hard to have a meaningful, intimate interaction with someone when it's just colored by what you bring to it every time. And it's just, it's so disappointing to me looking back at my life and just thinking about like, I mean, obviously you never want to look at like what could have been because that's always going to be a depressing yeah. conversation. But, like, even just interactions that I wish could have been different, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, you know, I did have a decent amount of friends and connections through through groups. Like, I was involved in, in dance and theater and music, and, and that mm. was the kind of stuff I did. And, and partly it was, like, I was good at these things, so it proved some worth. Um, right. So I could just go and do this thing and be good at it and... and even if you couldn't see my value anywhere else, it's like, look, I do this thing and I, I, I'm good. I see. Um, I'm normal. I'm participating. Yeah. Um, but I always, there was just always the fear of losing those friends. So it's, you know, just that constant, like, oh, you know, they like me because they don't know me well enough to. Right. That anxiety, like it can't let anything. them see any of the flaws. Yeah. Otherwise they would never like me. Yeah. Whereas I never had those friends to lose. I feel like <laughs> I didn't have the social skills to even attempt to cultivate them. Yeah. Like not until much later, not until at least university. And even in university, the only reason I think I made any friends was couple privilege. Oh, interesting. Because I had this like depressed partner. Yeah. So it was easier for me to um, make friends with girls because I was a partnered monogamous man. Therefore, uh -huh. I was safer. Yeah. So what was interesting about that was I couldn't typically make friends with men. Like there was, I don't know whether it was just that there was too much of a history of violence or whether it was too much of just like I wasn't close enough with my dad or like whatever it was. I just never really learned masculinity in a performative way. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of genderqueer and like, it was like the other men could smell it on me and they were like worried that if they got too close to me, they would catch fag, yeah. you know? And it was just like, so I just never felt like I could fit in with men. Whether that was true or not, it's a different story. Yeah. But I never felt like I could fit in with men growing up. Mm -hmm. And that was historically true, like from kindergarten all the way through. Um, in fact, if anything, in kindergarten, I was more okay with boys but, like, the second we got into pre-teenage years, like, 10, 11, yeah. like, it just, like, instantly I could not get along. Everyone was calling me a fag. I was getting, like, punched, et cetera. Like, it was... So, like, that sense of worthlessness, like, is so interestingly intersected by, like, queerness and yeah. and all the other things. Not to mention, when I think about BDSM, wow, this really did turn into something about me. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you're interested. Um, and, and often when people are sharing something vulnerable, I try and offer something vulnerable to mm. sort of meet people where they are rather than have it simply be a complete exposure of one person, which can sometimes feel like uncomfortable. Yeah. So I kind of was launching myself into the ring with you rather than <laughs> taking this like, tr no, like tragic sounding like um, discussion of worthlessness and being like, let's all talk about me. <laughs> Just to clarify, that is my insecurity expressing itself right there. I'm For worried sure. about what people are thinking about me as I'm talking about this. Yeah, I hear you. Right? So, but at least if I can name it, it's softer. Yeah. If I can talk about it, it's easier. So I, I always try and name it whenever I'm feeling it, just to sort of flag for other people who have that experience that it's okay to have this experience it sucks and it's okay to give it voice and name it and then to sort of say like cool and this isn't what's happening right now right like 
people aren't bored. People aren't saying, like, why does Victor always have to make this about himself? Like, no yeah. one's thinking that, probably. If you're the one person out there... <laughs> don't tell me. Yes, please don't tell me. Um, well, well, it is... Like, helping people see that they're not alone, you know, is a lot of why we why we do what we do. And, mm-hmm. you know, voicing those insecurities, voicing those, like, you know, the mental battles that we deal with all the time you know, it is, it helps people Mm -hmm. in that way. And I've had so many people come to me about my writing and be like, oh, wow. Like I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. And I've Mm -hmm. seen that in, in other people's writing or, or listening to other people's, um, you know, podcasts or, or reading books that when I see myself reflected in that, like it just, you feel, you just feel like so connected in a way that, you know, you'd felt so isolated before and it, yeah, it really helps. So even you voicing, you know, your insecurities helps me to be like, oh, yeah, when I get a bit babbly, it's usually because I'm kind of in that same totally. same headspace. And I think for a lot of folks, it may be the first time they're hearing it. Like in the world, yeah. the number of people struggling with those thoughts went from one to two. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be really helpful. Yeah. I know I've had an experience like that. So, yeah, we were talking about carrying a sense of worthlessness with us through our lives, you know, just to get us, just to hurt us back onto the light topics uh, we were discussing. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right. And this all came from how has people pleasing negatively affected your life? Yeah. Such an innocuous question. Such an innocuous question. But the... <laughs> the next one's even more innocuous in a sense it's and like, even more harrowing and, and it's like I, I wrote things what's wrong with me no 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 um, not at all it yeah and and so other relationships you know have right. gone on to be similar and and right. the one that uh, you know I spoke of on previous podcast that was really challenging and I felt so insecure and, and was always like so much more, you know, I felt so much more jealousy and so much more threat in that relationship mm-hmm. uh, because I really didn't feel like I could express my needs. Mm-hmm. And that same, you know, that fear coming up a lot of the time of of just sort of my my brain doing its thing, but also reflected back in some of the behavior, you know, I got back when I did ask for things Mm -hmm. um you know it wasn't always received well and Mm -hmm. so you know it just again these things just reinforce and in in a number of my relationships i just you know i could feel really comfortable i could know i'm awesome like i know that i'm a a good friend and kind and and a lot of these things yet in other places yeah you just like this underlying like you're a garbage human (laughs) kind of kind of feeling that when you would stop and and really think about it and really feel it. It's like, well, it's not actually true. Right. And I have all of this evidence to counter it. And I I have a, a couple of friends who don't like a lot of people, mm-hmm. but they like me. And that is, is helpful um, when I am in one of those really terrible brain spaces to be like, you know, like this person barely likes anyone but they like you so you gotta you you must have something i try and and, i try and use that that idea that just the fact that i'm this concerned is evidence i'm a good person like (laughs) good people are really concerned about this stuff and and it's okay that i'm struggling yeah yeah um but yeah it's meant that i've 
I've had like a lot of difficulty in relationships and, and haven't had my needs met. And, you know, that's, it's just really been hard and it's been hard to have like a really healthy, equitable kind of relationship in a, in a number of my places. Like, and even with Flick, like I, I did way more than my share of a lot of things through our lives. And it wasn't, until non-monogamy and it was actually a really amazing unexpected side effect of non-monogamy when he was talking about or talking to his other partners about their relationships he learned a lot about invisible femme labor Mm. and he you know got a lot of information with things that are talking about how you know all the extra mental weight that that women or femme folks or you know sure. as, uh, assigned female people tend to tend to carry mm-hmm. um, to like manage all the things and like in our relationship it, it did come up a lot where it would be like I would be upset that he wasn't you know pitching in as much as I did and he'd be like well you just have to ask me to do it um, and. You know, I would, and it would usually get done. But I would, I then sort of had to be like, can I don't, you? Can, I don't want to ask you. No, to do it. and I don't. But I would just got to the point where I'm like, okay, I'll ask you to do it, and then it wouldn't necessarily get done in the time frame that I had intended. And so it then became like, can you do this by this time, kind of thing? Because I'd end up doing it. He'd be like, I was going to do it, and I'm like, well, when? Like, um, right? And then they think that you're being unreasonable. Yeah. So I have a magnet system for roommate chores for that exact reason. Yeah. And literally, like a white magnet means like, oh yeah, this it's your turn. A blue magnet means please do, and a red magnet means do it as soon as is convenient for you. Yeah. And it's important, but to to have those communications because yeah and often people have different feelings about like what is needed and and how clean a place should be and that sort of thing but sure. but there was just so much put on me like to the point that at the time I thought it was really cute but thinking back I'm like this is horrifying that he phoned me one time at work to ask me what his shoe size was you fucking kidding <laughs> Um, Rather than take his shoe literally off his like, foot. I can't remember whether they were just old and it had worn through or, or whatever. But I was just like, and I just thought it was so cute. Like, oh, so, you know, so helpless. I just have to do this stuff for them. And and it's just like, and I just think back and it's like, ah. And I'm sure he would be horrified and probably won't want to listen to the, this podcast. Oh. Um, but I mean, like, it's going to be a hard podcast anyway. We've spent most of it talking about worthlessness. Also, okay. apologies for Flick. I wasn't trying to shame you. <laughs> Um, and it's, yeah, like, so these pieces that we would just carry and I would just manage it and I knew whose birthday it was and I knew, you know, how to do this and I would arrange for holidays and, you know, just like, and I would just do all this stuff. And so non-monogamy brought this, this, um, he just saw it suddenly in a different light because it wasn't, you know, me telling him it was these other people and, and it just like, it blew his mind. And, and suddenly I had this way more participatory partner who was like, just started cleaning the cat box and just started doing That's these amazing. things. And I would just come home and the dishwasher was running and just like all this stuff that, that just didn't happen because, you know, it, it just wasn't part of our flow. He he learned from other people and started seeing it and, and saw the inequality and saw that that discord that it brought and and it changed his behavior. And, and it's been amazing um, that who knew that just from wanting to bone other people, we would get this. That your nesting partner would be doing the dishes and cleaning the litter box. Yeah, and just feel like, um, like really, 
a partner in that piece of it. You know, and it really seems like it's not a big price to pay to just have a partner that has sex with other people, but then also does all of these other things. <laughs> yeah. More people should try it. Right? <laughs> I feel like by the end of this podcast, Flick is going to hate me. <laughs> Gonna just keep keep having like judgmental reactions to like the things that you're saying. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, he's a delight. He's an amazing partner in in so many ways, and it's certainly yes. not me dissing him. He's he's been incredible. Um, but again, he was raised at the time he sure. was raised, and 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 I mean, it's just mainstream socialization. Like I yeah. wasn't different when yeah. I started dating femmes. Like I was I was not different in terms of expecting emotional labor because that was how I was socialized. Yeah. and it took I guess in many ways maybe not non-monogamy, but possibly non-monogamy to really have it cement. Yeah, but there's a lot of emotional labor femmes are doing. Yeah, and and you know again like the you know the the time like you know the the way that society has changed the awareness a lot of this stuff mm. has has come to, mm-hmm. um, and you know he's become yeah such you know a better partner and a great ally and you know will go and 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 fight the fights for other like he will challenge mm-hmm. other people about mm-hmm. this sort of thing and particularly he'll challenge other men about mm-hmm. these views and it's just. It's it's really nice to to have that that extra push with these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I noted that you said garbage human earlier. <laughs> uh huh. It definitely ties into this idea that like some humans are inherently more valuable than other humans. Yeah. And I was noticing that you were jumping to thinking without going through like the feeling and the regulating. <laughs> I, I, feeling and regulating is really inconvenient. It is inconvenient, right? It's also very necessary. But you know all this anyway. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've definitely my default. Like, I just want to think. I like, you know, I'm smart. I'm, I'm emotionally intelligent. I can, you know, I should be able to just think my way through and solve it. Right. And sorry, that was the piece I'd actually meant to bring up because I pointed at garbage human and I was like, why did I want to talk about this? <laughs> um, because it is really normal for folks who have experienced trauma to be somewhat dissociated from their bodies. And that tends to lead us to the types of situations where the body is not a safe place to be. It's a traumatic place to be. Mm. So we spend a lot of energy not coming back to the body. And do everything in our power. And I'm not trying to speak for you. I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. With the knowledge of the body language I'm getting back in your face. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. That That is neither <laughs> confirming nor denying what I'm saying, of course. This is why it's better to podcast over Skype, because then you don't get called out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to avoid living in your body. I, yeah. I came across this when I was talking to my therapist, and I was like, you know... I think my body's a place I visit, not a place I live. Mm-hmm. And I think I visit it when it's sunny. Like, I come to my body when I'm having sex. Yeah. And that's partly why sex is so grounding and wonderful for me. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And and it, it's interesting because, like, I'm a dancer. And so I am actually, like, really connected to how my body feels in a lot of ways. And I'm quite in tune when, when things are off. And I... Yeah, I feel like I I live in my body a lot, but except except in my emotional body. Mm. And so that sort of that piece of it is definitely 
yeah, because it's always just trying to tamp it down, you know, just like, like, because it wasn't safe to express myself and express my needs, right. it was always just like, you know, I think of the the king of the hill, just swallow your feelings, just swallow it and gulp, <laughs> gulp, and when it starts to burn, you know, it's working. And, That's funny. And I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of Hank Hill in that, in that place. It's that like, show it, was really funny. Like, yeah. they got a couple of things spot on, and that's definitely one. Swallow yeah. your feelings. Yeah, and it's like, that's when you know it's working, and so... When it has physical consequences. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's always been a piece of, of that for me, and I tended, you know, to get sick a lot, and tended to, you know, I got, like, an ulcer when I was 14, and it has always just manifested... I think because I didn't feel like I could express my feelings, my body would be like, well, if I'm sick, then I can have the care that I want for my emotional stuff. Wow. And I and I didn't understand it at the time. And in fact, I'm not even entirely sure I understood it until I just said it. Um, but that that's how that would manifest all the time. And so I was, you know, forever coming down with colds and strep throat and abdominal stuff and headaches and migraines. And as a kid, it was like almost every day for me. Like I, I yeah. almost had, I had fewer well days than sick days at school. And like, I would still go to school, but I would always have like a niggling cough or a cold. Like I was just constantly stressed being bullied at home. My parents were constantly fighting. It was like, yes, yes to everything you just said. Mm-hmm. Constantly sick. Yeah. And 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 to this day, you know, I think, you know, dealing with the IBS is is very yes. much, you know, and I also have yeah, IBS. Symptomatic of a lot of that stuff and I just I also carried, had ulcers. carried with me. Um and yeah, it it sort of I think even to take days off work now is like a grown ass person. Um I I can only do it if I'm like incredibly unwell. Right. Um, and, you know, partly I'm self-employed and, you know, there's sure. a lot of that responsibility stuff. But, you know, I have to sort of prove myself to like X level before I'm allowed to do that self-care and be like, mm. you know what, I'm not going in today. And it's going to be a hassle to cancel all these people and stuff like that. But, you know, I need this for me. Um, I have to have sort of gone beyond a certain level of of illness to then like take care of myself in that way like you have to Um, prove it to yourself yeah or i have to be so depressed that i'm just sitting on the edge of the bed like staring at the wall and i'm like unable to get dressed right which for someone as anxious and responsibility charged as i am like yeah the intersection of depression and anxiety is unfortunate yeah um it's like it's real bad if i've gotten to that point um but if i were to try to take like more than one day off i'd be like okay stop being self-indulgent um so you know it's just feeling sorry for yourself yeah exactly like suck it up you know all that sort of messaging um i have a note on pushing down feelings have you heard of the idea of titrating traumatic experience no do you know what a titration is uh, it's a sciencey word that yes, I can't is. quite. Uh, I'm like picturing like things dividing into. It's it's honestly like it's an unnecessarily elitist way to talk about this, but a somatic therapist came up with it, um, and it's 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 sticking in this city because the therapist was from Victoria. Okay. Um, in my opinion. Um, but the idea is your body can only hold so much trauma in it at one point without the experience being re-traumatizing. Okay. So the idea is how do you keep the level of trauma you're rehashing 
or expressing or processing below that threshold. Yeah. That's the entire concept. Okay. But the way it's explained is using this chemistry metaphor of titration. Are you fam- so right? So titrating is essentially you have one solution. Typically, it'll be something like let's take a simple example: a base with an indicator. Yeah. And then you have a second solution, which is an acid. Um, you don't know how basic the solution is because it's a sample of something. Yeah. And you want to try and figure out: okay, I took a small sample of it. How basic is that thing? Yeah. Well, you have to add a very small amount of acid to it, and as you add acid to it comes closer and closer to um, a pH range where you'll be able to visually see a flip. Okay. Right? So you want to know how much did I have to add to get it to this place. Okay. And that lets you know how basic it was, and then you can look at the original thing. Yeah. But the problem is, if you're adding it quickly, because some of these titrations take a long time, you might be adding, like, I don't know, a tenth of a milliliter, and you might need to go, like, 20, 30, 50 milliliters, depending on yeah. concentration. It depends on how much you know. Yeah. So when it, what can end up happening is you can literally spend like 40 minutes watching this go drip by drip, making sure that at the second that it changes color, you stop the flow yeah. of drips. So it's about adding exactly enough, going very slowly, uh-huh. and not overshooting. Because if you overshoot, you've ruined the whole thing. Yes. So that's why titration is like a useful metaphor. But it's kind of complex to get to. Yeah. When it really, it's about the threshold of what your body can manage. Another traumatic, or sorry, traumatic, another somatic therapist um, explains it as this concept of titration really is just about slowing everything down. It's not just about adding less trauma. It's about experiencing it slower. So Mm. slowing down all of your reactions to the point that it's moving in one tenth speed, like really slow. As you're having these emotions come up, trying to experience them frame by frame more slowly than you normally would. Okay, yeah. If there's music playing in your head, anxious music that's keeping you going, you slow it right down to like a fraction of the speed that it was playing at. If you're jiggling your foot, you continue jiggling your foot at one-tenth the speed in this incredibly intentional, slow, almost stretching exercise. Okay. You pull everything right back to super slow and continue to have that traumatic experience. <laughs> like, it lets you really watch and tease apart all the layers. Yeah. And you get to do a lot of this really important deep work. And you don't end up stuffing anything down exactly because the rate that you're letting the titrate or titrating in this trauma into your body is a slow enough rate you can manage, feel, identify, and process all these feelings out. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So there's that whole concept, which is a really important piece in like figuring out how to deal with like, my body's full of inconvenient feelings and they're getting overwhelming. I'm just going to continue to stuff them into this convenient suitcase and sit on it. Yeah. I'm just going to go like exercise a bunch and it's just going to take some of it away without me actually having to think of it or deal with it. That's actually not a Um, terrible solution. Like exercise is a legitimate coping strategy. (laughs) And honestly, it's a lot more healthy than like how I overeat. So yeah, well, I'm kind of there too but um but yeah like trying to discharge some of that is is interesting and and I know that when I've done somatic types of therapy it's been so helpful because Mm. yeah those those physical pieces are what I always fight but I often think like but I didn't ever really experience trauma um because I I have this 
picture in my head of what trauma looks like. Right, and, right. And, which you is know, typically it's... one traumatic moment as opposed to slow exposure of yeah. really damaging thoughts over <laughs> yeah. long periods of time, which if, if my life is any template for, I would say it's highly traumatic. We just don't think about it like yeah, that. Yeah, because, you know, I think, like, I was incredibly lucky and I didn't ever experience like abuse from like physical abuse from my parents um, or, you know, I've never been sexually assaulted. Like I feel like I've, I, I I'm unfortunately had... a yes to both of those yeah. things. But even if even for people who aren't like there's this whole idea of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the idea that people that have been um, abused in some way over really long periods of time in even like the most like small volume it's the consistency and the inability for you to go from um what's in psychology called an aroused state and like an activated state you can't bring yourself back to a resting state so you just have this chronic anxiety that tracks with you through your life and that's that's really significant. It doesn't have to be one traumatic event yeah. or even abuse from someone else. It can be an internalized abusive monologue where you're constantly unable to find relief from injuring yourself psychologically. Yeah. I've named that Carl. Wonderful. <laughs> Having a name is helpful. Yeah. Carl's a dick. Carl is a dick. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I often try to be like, okay, that's Carl. Carl can fuck off. Yep. Um, fuck off, Carl. Yeah. Fuck off, Carl. Fuck off, Carl. Yeah. 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 Fuck off, Carl. (laughs) I was, yeah, I was trying to string together other words, but all that came to mind was fuck off, Carl. I'm not even sure what we were talking about. <laughs> oh, we were talking about how people-pleasing negatively affects lives. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And, and apparently I was just like... this, like, low-grade anxiety that comes with people-pleasing can can cause, like, an inability to, like, get out of that anxiety and yeah. can be severely crippling. Um, speaking of which, the next question is, do you think people-pleasing can have physical as well as psychological consequences? I'll just put a check next to that one. Yes, because, yeah, I think we both have definitely affirmed the yeah, uh, there the are physical, physical side effects. You know, and, and headaches, nausea, yeah. bloating, gas, like all sorts of IBS, um, yeah. eating disorders for me. Yeah, um, the migraines. Oh. The, uh... I don't tend to get migraines, fortunately. I okay. did when I was younger, but I don't anymore. Yeah, these are all elements. And and I think it's something that they're studying more. And I think over the next, you know, 10, 20 years is going to become really yeah. a big thing in science is the idea of the gut biome and, mm. and how that mm-hmm. affects, you know, our mental state. And mm-hmm. I know that my mental state definitely affects my gut, but I've learned as I've been exploring more with, you know, trying to, to eat better and, and sort out my IBS so that I don't always have to have a stomach ache for two years um <laughs> it um i'm realizing how much when when that system is off how much my brain goes off and how the two speak to each other a lot oh, and yeah. and i feel like that's going to be something that over the next while becomes more uh as they're learning more in science about it and i'm hoping that that will will help with some i was some, some talking i was talking to my doctor about antidepressants and he mentioned he's like you know ibs is sometimes treated by taking antidepressants. And I was yeah. like, God fucking damn. I was so like frustrated. I was like, yeah. not only did, did this never get identified that I've had this my whole life. Yeah. Like I, I only just a couple days ago dot formally diagnosed as having depression. Okay. Um, and I'm like, I didn't need a fucking formal diagnosis. Like I, I knew more about the criteria than it seemed. Yeah. 
Um, like certainly with a clumsy way that intake tools are handled, I'm, I'm, and I don't mean in any way disrespect to my doctor because he actually handled it with a great deal of compassion, but the types of rubrics and tools he was using were, were just like so wholly, woefully inadequate yes. and, and so poorly thought out in their, in their really ho- like almost hostile binary approach to mental health that I was like, who wrote this? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that was my take on it. When I was first exposed to it, I was like, this is trash lit on fire. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So how about those benefits to being a people pleaser? (laughs) I'm sure when I wrote it down, I thought there must have been one. (laughs) 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 Um... But... I mean, you end up you end up becoming like through social anxiety. I feel like I've become more attuned to body language, and I've become yeah. more overly considerate um, about certain things. That's allowed me to develop a palate for when people might be doing things like saying yes when they mean no. Yeah. Um, so there has been a benefit in so much as I'm better able to understand why people don't feel safe saying no yeah, and why they might say yes instead of no because they're being swayed by other things. So I would say that having a better comprehension of consent would be one of the few silver linings to being a people pleaser. Yeah. And I th- one of the other ones that is is a little complicated in it because it has benefits and negatives, but it can sometimes help you find community. Mm. Um, because mm-hmm. like when I have, um, you know, joined a musical theater troupe and become like the dance captain, um, and suddenly like writing out all the notes and all this stuff, like it gives people reason to talk to me and it helps me generate friendships that I would not as the super duper introvert that I am be able to naturally make on my yeah. own because I'm not yeah. going to be the one who just walks up to someone and is like, hi, you know, I'm Kat, like, want to be friends? Because, like, Argh. I don't know how to have those kind of interactions. But by having someone come talk to me about something that I'm doing, and they have a question about this thing, and I can show them, then we can connect in a way and I can sort of show them that I'm a person and I'm friendly and connected. And so I've I've ended up generating community through that uh, in a strange, very circular way. <laughs> and that's where a number of my friends, like, especially in like senior high, because we actually, we moved down to the lower mainland in between grades 10 and 11. So I suddenly had to, you know, get entirely new friend circles. I did the same thing, um, but I moved out of the lower mainland to Kamloops. Oh, okay. Places. Yeah. And it's like, it's a challenging time to, to get to do to, or to do that kind of transition and you know though I went from having no friends to having no friends so it didn't <laughs> really change all that much like I left behind the community that I'd cultivated with the library club yeah right like all the people that did library at lunch but yeah. and and I do still keep in touch with some of those people in fact some of those people have been actually quite significant in my life yeah um like like shout out to Jason and Rob um, <laughs> being being great humans and Chris and Dylan to some extent as well even though I don't keep in touch with them like looking back now I'm like I get it. Like, I get why it was so hard to be friends with someone that was anxious and depressed and didn't have words for them, had IBS and had gas and was just like, you know, just abrasive as fuck because his parents didn't model any kind of healthy social interactions. Yeah. Like, I get that that's a hard person to find likable or be friends with. So it's like, not like it was anyone else's fault, 
But uh, yeah, going from being that person in one city to another wasn't a significant loss of friends for me because it was like even good people would just have a hard time relating to me, which is totally understandable for me. Yeah, that's tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely was losing, you know, fairly significant friendship circles. Although I think, you know, I, I tended to have close friends, but after kind of the betrayal of those friends in my younger years, I was always pretty guarded. Mm. So I had, you know, fairly close friendships, but there was always, yeah, there was always a bit of a, a limit to them. Uh, but when we, when we moved down here, I just like, I, I did the musical theater and I was in, you know, dance and stuff like that. So again, like just by doing activities with people and, and creating something together. And if they, you know, saw that I was talented and saw that I could do these things, then it was going to generate these likes, but it, it was definitely all about like the doing and the proving and, you know, that people pleasing thing. But I did end up with friendships out of it that I could eventually let my guard down a bit mm -hmm. within. That's most positive. Um, so, so yeah, it, like sometimes it's a, it's a tool that can be useful if you don't have the other tools. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, people pleasing isn't inherently a negative in the sense that like it was, it was adaptive at one point. Like yes. you cultivated this this yeah, personality trait, that... right? It kept you safe. Yeah. Like you you felt like you were able possibly to have a safe home environment or a more safe home environment because you helped other people regulate. Yeah. Like you consistently kept all of the uncertain, dangerous feeling elements or threatening elements like at peace because you were running around doing all this emotional labor because it was preferable to not doing it. Yeah. So, like, a lot of these strategies are just, like, really good adaptive strategies that are years ahead of where they ideally should be. Yeah. Um, in a sense, if you want to even use the word should. But a yeah. lot of responsibility for a child. Like, an unreasonable amount of responsibility for a child. Yeah. And just learning new adaptive strategies. Yeah, exactly. As an adult. Exactly. Which is okay. Like, a lot of adults are learning new adaptive yeah, strategies. for sure. So how has people-pleasing affected your relationships? Oh, did, did, we, did I double question? Oh, the last one was, how do you see the benefits of being a people-pleaser? And this one was, how has people-pleasing affected your relationships? Oh, I was just thinking earlier when... Anyway, I can just answer. We can also than... we can also mulligan if you want to move on to a different question. Yeah, I just feel like we kind of talked about that earlier, and I thought you know what, you're that probably maybe... Right. Uh, maybe it was that we negatively affect your life. I then talked about you know relationships totally right. a lot. So. You did talk about it already. Well, let's talk about what steps you've taken to overcome the quote-unquote good girl conditioning. Yeah. Um, you know, it's definitely still a battle, but I think, you know, being connected with people who I feel safe and secure with has definitely helped a lot. Mm -hmm. and And I, like... Flick as a partner has been quite remarkable in a lot of this, that when I'm, when I'm dealing with difficult feelings, um, he's helped to encourage me to not try to be, not try to make everything all neat and tidy. And he, like, he's even when I'm like, oh, I feel this way, but it's not reasonable. And he's like, how about, like, let's just be unreasonable. Yeah. Like, ask me for an unreasonable demand. Like in this scenario where someone was coming to stay and I thought it was too long and I was really uncomfortable with it. But I was like, oh, but you don't see them very often and they're traveling a long way. So I was like doing all this stuff and it's like it's unreasonable for me to 
to say that I don't want this. Um, and him just saying, like, <clears throat> be unreasonable. Like, ask for what you want. Yeah. You don't have to be reasonable all the time. That's amazing. And, yeah, like, you know, getting that permission, which is what I needed at the time, um, to do that really helped me ask for things. And, and I've usually gotten the things I've asked for in those moments and no mm-hmm. one has hated me and no one has like resented me forever and, and that kind of thing. Like it's the consequences for me making those asks have not been the dire things that my brain has told me will be the consequences to those asks. And, right. and the more sort of reinforcement of those things, you know, it helps it be safer every time it's successful. Um, it, it makes it a little bit easier to do. Uh, and you know, therapy has definitely been helpful as well. You know, having people help identify, you know, where those patterns came from and, you know, much like we talked about today, like it being unreasonable for a child to take all that on. And Mm -hmm. it's like, this is a role you played at one point and it was really important. Let's look at you not playing this role anymore. Like, let's find a way for you to to exist in these relationships without having to play this role. And it's been, yeah, really helpful to me to, to work mm-hmm. my way through, through some of that stuff. And um, yeah, it's, it's been incredibly valuable. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, I won't even say interesting, but somewhat horrific to think about the reversal of the parent child responsibility where parents become children and children become their parents Mm -hmm. um, in in the sense of trying to take on the parental responsibility because they were behaving essentially like children. Yeah. Like that's just such an unreasonable switch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that, emotional responsibility when you're not ready for it, yeah. you know, cause I, like, I, I thankfully didn't ever have to be the one that, you know, cooked dinners cause somebody was drunk or something like that, that I know right. people have had those kinds of experiences, right. but just that emotional responsibility for someone who was not at all emotionally developed, um, is yeah, it was a lot. I was, um, I was actually just listening to, I feel like Zap Brannigan. I got this great book on tape. It's about life in ancient Greece. And- <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's called, I don't want to talk about it. And it's about depression in men. But one of the stories that was shared was about that same parent child reversal where, um, a boy would literally go and sit with his alcoholic mother because sometimes she stopped breathing when she was really drunk. Um, and he would do that to make sure that he didn't have to call an ambulance. Yeah. And he would do that literally like every day. He would just stay up and listen to her breathing like laboredly as she was passed out essentially from yeah. from alcohol. And he did that like essentially almost every day. And I think about that and I'm just like, yeah, like some people have real problems, but... <laughs> But then, then I think about my own childhood and, and, and the struggles I've had since then and, like, the number of times my life have been suicidal. And I'm like, yeah, I shouldn't discount that my problems are real problems, too. Yeah, like, it's not it's not the trauma Olympics. We don't have to, right. you know. <laughs> and it's not the one instance. Yeah. Right? It's, like, it's, it's any state of heightened anxiety or trauma or any kind of activation where you cannot come out of that state, especially through developmental years where your brain just gets conditioned into like, Oh, this is normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It, when it's used to that chemical soup, it just continues on in that. So it might be a bit of a double question, but what were the benefits of shaking off some of that good girl conditioning? 
Well, it's definitely, you know, helped me occasionally get what I want. Um, <laughs> it's, and I think it's helped me in my, in my sexuality as well by not sure. feeling like I need to follow these rules of, of mm -hmm. how I'm supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, being able to make my pleasure a priority mm -hmm. um, in a way that that hadn't been the case um, and and feel good about that. Yeah. As opposed to feeling guilty and 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 ashamed that I was like asking this, you know, this is somebody. Especially if you're approaching um, other femmes. Yes. Yeah. And just feeling like, no, this is this is what I, you know, this is good. And, and asking for this stuff is, is really beneficial. And it's, yeah, it's just really helped me come into my body and, and figure out who I am and how I work and in all these really satisfying ways mm -hmm. that has, yeah, just helped me grow, um, like emotionally as well, because that, you know, getting that sort of physical reinforcement like helps my brain, you know, totally, um, to, to feel that as well. And I think, you know, it's given me the opportunity to, you know, to write this book about being a slut and to yeah. really embrace that and to, to take the risk of, of being vulnerable in that way and putting myself out there and, and, you know, having my photo on it and, you know, like that kind of like, like, this is, this is me and people are seeing this and, yeah, I, I never could have done that and I until I sort of started shaking off those kind of feelings. And, and a lot of this stuff I don't think I could have done in my 20s or possibly even in my 30s. Like it right. took getting to this point in my life to, to see myself for who I am. And mm -hmm. even though it often bounces back to those negatives, like I can then go like, wait a minute, and like sort of do the cognitive behavioral steps and like, you know... Talking oh. yourself out of beating yourself up. Yeah, and be like, wait, okay, what evidence do we have for this? And what evidence we, do we have that you're actually a really decent human being and people mm -hmm. both like and love you? And, and so, you know, it helps to... There's, a, there's an element of common humanity in there. Like yeah. believing you are just a human, neither better nor worse than any other human. Exactly. Humans deserve compassion and kindness. And that it's important to try and practice compassion and kindness yourself. And when I started treating that skill as a skill I wanted to be good at because mm -hmm. I'm so prone to trying to be really good at things yeah. because of my perfectionism that you can turn it on itself that way by looking at treating yourself with kindness as a skill that you're going to master. Mm. Okay. I can probably tap into that too. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully one of the things I've tossed out there is in some way helpful to you or someone. <laughs> yeah, listening. no, that's, I think it was like, Oh wait. So much of that, like, grandiosity, it, for me, behind perfectionism is just an expression of, like, deep hurt and fear and, and just trauma, if nothing else. Like, there's so much of it that is just, like, this place of lack and desperate need to be worth something. Yeah. And that even being the same as, like, the lowliest human, when you start seeing a commonality among all people in the human experience, it's it's just so much easier to be, like, I can live with being absolutely average or even a bit below average yeah. like i can live with just being an average human because it is so much further up than being the highest performing perfectionist yeah for sure and i uh, an anxiety course that i took our our mantra was aim low 
<laughs> and, like it was kind of life-changing for me um because yeah. it you know it, it is to like counter those perfectionist thoughts and you know occasionally when i'm having a day where i'm at my job and i'm like oh you know all these other people have done these extra courses and they have this knowledge and they have this and this and i'm like i'm doing a fine job yeah i'm not the best at this sure i'm not the worst at this i am doing a perfectly adequate job a perfectly cromulent job <laughs> um, and and that is fine like that it's great yeah. so yeah aim low it's helped me a lot thank you i love that that is all the questions i had all right we got through it all Woo! yay i only cried once <laughs> <laughs> oh that's okay and many more times to come when processing right oh yeah of yeah. course Thank you so much for your time, Kat. Yeah, thank you. This has been really great. Thanks for being on the show. It was awesome. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Resurrection by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.